don't believe in luck, but that's like his lucky number. So anything over that, he uh, gives to his workers and kind of makes them work harder. And we'll also keep his exact numbers. Uh, I mentioned the lucky numbers because there are people in third world countries who believe in lucky numbers. I'm not sure how to say this tactfully. That was an example of a pagan response. What would be the Christian response? Was it because he was unlike John D. Rockefeller and didn't ask? He was unlike John D. Rockefeller and therefore said that's enough, that's right, but how would it be possible to get exactly 500 of these animals? Profit sharing. Profit sharing. Remember about profit sharing? <clears throat> you use the McKees as an example. Yeah, McKees is an example. You simply tell your herdsman, I'm going to have 500 of these things and that's all. And if you make it a really healthy herd and there's a whole lot more of them besides 500, you get them. So, I'm not saying that's what happened. That's not in the text. But this illustrates why it's possible for that to happen. And there are people who say uh, those, those exact numbers of animals show clearly that this is fiction. And you can believe that. That's honest, intellectually honest. You can believe that. But the truth is that it isn't absolutely necessary for those 500, those thousand, whatever it is, to be, to have been um, fictional. Profit sharing would give the herdsman the opportunity and the motivation to keep that right at 500 and everything above that goes to them. So profit sharing makes it possible. So when people say no, it's not possible. You, 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 exactly a thousand camels. Are you crazy? You, you, you'd have to have a thousand one. These are, this is a fictional number. No, not necessarily. So, all right. You can believe that it's fictional. You can do that honestly. But we're not forced to believe that. And when the Bible says there was... If we decide to think, well, there wasn't really, what does that say about us? You see, people say that we read the Bible and they're right, but the Bible also reads us. And our reaction to a thing like there was tells more about us than the narrative. Go. Couldn't you just say that the numbers themselves are the fictional thing? Like, it doesn't seem ridiculous to, to round up or round down by a few or something. Like, over, over um, time, obviously, you can't say exactly at 5,000 or whatever it is because there's a famine and, and 10 of them die or something. You, like could, you, could, you could argue that. Uh, as I say, a number of the, of the rabbis do not. They use those numbers to show that it must be fiction. So I'm saying no. You could say that it's rounded up or rounded down, but I still like there was. He had that many. And there is no reason why he couldn't have had exactly that many given profit sharing. So then 
our decision to say, well, you know, um, I, the Bible doesn't really mean that. Well, okay, but that's our reaction and doesn't come from the Bible. The Bible says there was. So as I say, the Bible reads us as to how we respond to it. And if we say dogmatically, and in fact even uh, in an extreme, I believe it was exactly 1,000 camels. Somebody else can't say, well, then you're a stupid idiot who doesn't understand literature. No, it's possible. And the Bible is more than literature. Who's actually on trial in the book of Job, as we said? Job is being tested, yes. Mm -hmm. But is he the defendant in the trial? He's a witness. He's being asked to testify under torture. Who's on trial? God is. That trial is about God. God calls Job as a witness. So you can say that, God, that Job is on trial, but not really because Job is presented as a witness, and he is, of course, tried as a witness. That's what happens when, when, the, when a regular witness in a courtroom comes in, the guy cross-examines him. That's a kind of trial, yes. But the witness is not on trial. The defendant's on trial. This brings up a very interesting point, who's on trial. Sometimes we hear the question, what do we live for? What's the purpose of a Christian life? And people want to say, well, to get to heaven. And of course that's true, but it's not the ultimate truth. What is the job of a Christian on earth? Bring everyone. Sorry? so they can be in heaven too. Okay, tell everyone about Christ so they can be in heaven too. Yes, we want as many people joining us in heaven as possible. That's true. But there's a more fundamental truth. To show that love wins? To show that love wins? To show that love wins, okay. Still, more fundamental truth. I'm sorry, this is one of those little times when can you guess what the teacher is thinking. But what the teacher is thinking is actually well-established theology. It just isn't talked about much. Cecilia. Would you be an example of Christ? To be an example of Christ, yes, to others, to witness to them, so they go to heaven, well, yes. Just, like, just witness, but like, be an example of Christ. Like if, to be an example of Christ for what world, purpose? The other worlds and the angels in heaven are watching those who didn't Christ's way is better. Okay, you're, we're, we're getting closer to it. The purpose of a Christian life, finally, is to vindicate God's character. We are witnesses of God's character. God is the one on trial. He needs character witnesses who will stand up for him like the three Hebrew children and say, we don't know 
whether God is going to save us or not, but we know one thing. We're not going to bow down to that idol. And then in the story in Daniel, two, I guess it is, maybe three, I've forgotten. In the story, they are joined by the Son of God in the fire. This vindicates God's character. It's God's character that's under attack. Satan doesn't care two pins about us intrinsically. We're little creatures, who cares? But we are a way to bring pain and misery and victimization to God. The only reason why Satan cares about us is that he wants to uh, attack God. We are here to vindicate God's character. That's the ultimate duty. All the rest of it follows. There's nothing wrong with saying we need to uh, uh, go to heaven. We need to bring as many people to heaven as we can. Uh, all of that's true. But it's not bedrock. Bedrock is vindicating God's character. It isn't about us. Ultimately, it is not about us. To think it is about us is an adolescent thing, isn't it? A 14-year-old, 13-year-old thinks it's all about them. They have to learn, no, no. There's a different perspective here. They get mature. Vindicate God's character. I notice a number of people texting. I hope as you text, you are taking notes for the class. Otherwise, it's a vacation from the class, and please rejoin us. So I don't know what you're doing, but if you are taking a text vacation from the class, please come back to us. Put forth thine hand now. This statement is of Satan's toward God as a claim uh, that's both true and false. Explain how it's true. Yeah. Uh, claim, he's basically kind of saying, like, God has the power. He has all the power, which is true. God's omnipotent. So what do we say? Why do we say that Satan has power? If God is omnipotent, how come Satan has power? Aha. Becky. God is giving, but letting him use power. Giving, I guess, works, whatever. God is keeping Satan alive. And one of the great questions in theology is why, and we don't know. As C.S. Lewis says, we just have to accept that God's keeping Satan alive at the price of infinite misery is worth it. And when we say so, and when we trust so, we are helping vindicate God's character. Yeah. Um, do you think that he's keeping Satan alive to give us choice? Maybe. We had choice anyway. In the Garden of Eden, when it was, when it was uh, before sin, there was that tree. So we had choice. Satan had choice. It's now a tougher choice because we're being so, so tempted all the time. I'm not... I haven't got a good answer for you on this, but 
I know in whom I have believed, and he's wonderful. Yeah. Well, what Kate. I've always gone by from all of the study that I've done oh. is that he's keeping Satan alive so that the trial can go to its end, so that Satan's way can be shown to be futile and pointless, and so that the entire cosmos can't ask the question, well, what if Satan had lived till, the, till he was destroyed? Um, in the in the fire at the end, what if Satan had continued? If, if God had blasted Satan out of the sky, everyone would be wondering, oh, that's what I do when I break the law? Oh, instead of saying, oh, Satan destroyed himself, it would be God destroying Satan, and then his claims, there would be this rumor in everyone's minds that his claims weren't true. Uh, that's very good, and that is, in fact, uh, what Mrs. White says. Um, that's dead center Seventh-day Adventist theology that the once it's this has happened God needs to let it take its course like a horrible disease so that in the end the evil of Satan and the righteousness of God his character will be proved to the entire universe, and sin will never again raise its head. So, yes, we are giving, God is giving a long time, but finite time, to this trial. But once it's over, there will be an eternity without sin and with glory. Thank you. That's, that's exactly right. And I don't know why I forgot it. Well, three out of three, what do you think? Yeah, several. Good. All right. <laughs> we haven't even gotten past the quiz yet, and it's 20 minutes after, and I'm in, I'm in serious trouble. Let's go to line 15 or, 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 or verse 15. We're not going to get as far as I was hoped. I had hoped, but that's all right. I'm sorry, are you what? Uh, chapter 1. Chapter 1. We haven't even gotten out of chapter one, folks. We got a little further because it was just me talking and there was no conversation. So we got a little farther. Sometimes we don't even get past chapter, uh, verse six. So getting to 15 is pretty good. Well, okay. So there was a day, and again, was there? We keep seeing this, there was a day. And people who believe that this is fictional, and again, that's, intellectually honest to believe that it's fictional. If you do, I have no quarrel except to say I disagree, but there's no way to say no it isn't. But it's better literature if we say there was a day when Job's sons and daughters actually were eating and drinking in their eldest brother's house and there came a messenger to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them, took them away. Yet they've, yeah, they've slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. You've seen that, and you will see it again. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God. The fire of God. You see? They're not sure where the evil comes from. Is it the fire of God? Well, in one sense, because God's omnipotent.
But it's, we know it's Satan's hand doing this. When he says the fire of God says that, that, uh, that messenger. Now because the messenger says it, is that holy writ? No, the messenger's saying it from what he knows. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. See, nobody knows about Satan and this, uh, this word Satan until the book of Job. And so this, this guy, servant, reporting doesn't know it. And only, and I only, am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, slain thy servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Notice how they keep saying these things. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and behold, they came of great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they're dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. I only am escaped alone to tell thee. That reminds me of the Gurkhas. Anybody ever heard of the Gurkhas? It's because you're too young. If you had lived through World War II, you'd have heard about the Gurkhas or World War I. They are tribesmen from Nepal in the service of the British Army, and they are one of the toughest units in the British Army. They are famous for their knives, which are wickedly curved-looking things. You've seen them, kind of bent. Kukris. And in World War I and World War II, they specialized in going between the lines at night and finding German soldiers in the trenches or the foxholes and killing them so silently that the other soldiers in those foxholes or trenches would not know. And they would wake up in the morning, or they would be on watch and see in the morning, and their friends are all dead. The whole trench or the whole foxhole, all dead. But they would leave that one, and you know, these guys, uh, um, how would they know in the dark? Well, sometimes they'd get into an Allied trench. And then in World War II, you would, you'd be sitting there thinking you were all alone and you would feel a tap on your helmet. British helmets felt different from German helmets or American helmets. And just a light tap would tell. And you'd feel this tap on your helmet and that's all. And you would know that there had been a Gurkha right there with his knife at your throat tapping to see whether you were an ally or a German. It was terrifying. Why would they leave one man, one German, alive in that foxhole or that trench? Intimidation. Yeah, Shari. They, they'd say, you know, they'd come and they'd say, I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything. And, and my friends are all dead. What's it going to be like the next night? Okay. Isn't that satanic? British tactics often were satanic, along with other tactics in the war. So this is pure satanic. Only I am escaped to tell you. 
The only reason I'm alive is so I can give you more pain in the story. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and cursed God. Right? Is that what it says? What does it say? King James says, worshipped. What does your translation say? Same thing, worshipped. What does worship mean? Praise. Praise. Go. To give thanks. Our word worship comes from the old English worth ship, which means worthy. It comes worth means value. If you are worshiping God, you are ascribing value to God. If to use the old Saxon, the old English word, and it's a pretty good way of thinking of it. We are ascribing value to God. We are praising God. We are thanking God. There's a, uh, there's a quote, isn't there? 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything give thanks. It's just a little throwaway line in Thessalonians. But think of the enormity of what it's saying. When I got a call from the doctor and they said, Yes, you have cancer. And it's spreading pretty fast. Was my first instinct to say, Praise the Lord! No. But when I came to myself, I said, Wait a minute. I've got to think better. And so I did. Thank you, Lord. I don't know why this is happening to me. But I know that you're in charge and that everything you do is for my benefit and can be made into my benefit. Yes, this is a satanic thing, but God can bring good out of it. And thank you for the good that stands behind this. Yeah, I did. But it wasn't the first, my first instinct. No, I, I can't pretend that. Here is Job, and the first thing he says is, and he worshipped, and he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What does Satan say? He will curse thee to thy face. Job says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe this is literal. Not just a little fiction. I believe that this man was close enough to the Lord to be able to say that, and that these very words are what he said. Yes, I think so. Blessing and cursing. What's the difference? What's a curse? What's a blessing? Dr. Leslie Harding, one of his tapes, says, a blessing is an enabling a blessing is a, an enabling, uh, enables you to do what you were intended to do. And he added a little illustration. He said, as a, he was an Irishman raised in India, he said, a canary, 
in order to sing beautifully, needs but seeds and water. And then he can sing. Needs the blessings of seeds and water and protection from foxes. And then he can sing. That's a blessing. To sing beautifully, a crow would need a miracle, he said. <laughs> Difference between a blessing and a miracle. A blessing simply enables you to fulfill a God-implanted uh, destiny. A God-implanted uh, um, function. Accomplishment. Like the canary, if you have the blessings of uh, food and water and so on, nice treatment, you're going to sing. Because that's what canaries do. When a, an elder son was blessed by his father in ancient Israel, the elder son had, had the ability to have the double portion, but as the elder son, that ability was intrinsic to be released by the blessing. Okay? So, when we bless God, we release him to do his good. When we bless God, we open the way for him to do the good he would do. So what's a curse? It's the opposite. It slams the door. When we curse God, we are, by our will, walling him off from doing us good. It may feel good to curse him, but finally it cuts us off from the good he would do for us. And Satan has said, he will curse you to your face. And instead, with all of this horror, Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Right? In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So Job at this point is still perfect, according to the narrative. Again, there was a day. Was there? Yes. In my belief, yes. There was a day. And I think that day happens every day. I think it's constant. And one day, it's entirely possible that God will look at Satan and say, Hast thou considered my servant Aida? That'll be a scary day, won't it? Or my servant Caitlin? My servant Rachel? There came a day. See, if this is just fiction, then this isn't much better than Stephen King. No more moral, but that's all. Or the Lord of the Rings. We read the Lord of the Rings, we have a good time with it. We don't really think there's such a creature as Sauron. 
or that Mount Doom exists somewhere. It's just the delicious, frightening business of a roller coaster. You know that the roller coaster is actually pretty safe. It doesn't feel that way. You get a thrill, but you know that there's no life-threatening. Every once in a while they go bad, but mostly not. Okay? And you don't worry about that. Ah! It's really fun to be scared. It's a fictional kind of fright. If Job is fiction, that's all this is doing. But if it's real, if there really is a day, and if one of us is righteous enough and close enough to God so that he can name us as a witness, knowing that we will witness under torture, that's a sobering thing. Right? Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, See, these are formal speeches. This is an epic. These are formal speeches. God knows very well who Satan is and where he's come from. But he says it in order to make uh, the official moment happen. Whence, from whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down on it. Same answer, same idea, the restlessness of Satan. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him? Wow. Even though thou movest me against him. Hear that? You have to understand what the situation is. Thou movest me against him. Yeah, you're using my power. It's your hand, but my power. That's a very important distinction to make. You need to understand what the situation is here. To destroy him without cause. Of course, Satan rebelled without cause, didn't he? Crazy. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Yea, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand. Notice the Satan, God doesn't argue. Put forth thine hand. God just tells the truth. He's in your hand. And Satan doesn't argue either. He accepts it. Too bad Satan tried that one, didn't work. He will curse thee to thy face. He's in thy hand, but save his life. Notice the barriers. There are barriers. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal. And he sat down among the ashes. What misery we can go through. But the misery is not the final truth, is it? I love what Mrs. Goddard said in church in front of church the other day. She found out her husband had rapidly progressing brain cancer. Not going to live long. 
and he deteriorated rapidly. And she said to him at one point while he was bedridden, but why? And he said to her, that's not the right answer. That's not the right question. The right question is how? And of course she wasn't sure what he meant. And he said, how can this experience glorify the Lord? Magnificent answer. It's not about us. It's not about our suffering or our joy. It's about him vindicating his character. That's the first job. That's the mission. It isn't about us. Then his wife said in a moment, he's got to be abandoned. There are people who are terrified of being alone, of standing alone. Remember the song, Dare to be a Daniel? Dare to stand alone? It's true. If you're afraid of being alone, that's what Satan's going to do to you. Certainly by threat. Don't you say that. Don't you be a Christian. You'll be alone. Everybody will hate you. The answer is, yeah, I'll be alone. Just me and Jesus. But that's the threat. And people who are terrified of being ostracized are very vulnerable and need our prayers. So his wife says, Dost thou still retain thy integrity? Curse God and die. Do our spouses sometimes speak for Satan? Sure. Have I spoken for Satan to my wife? Yes. God help me not to do it again. Sure. We need grace for this. <laughs> Curse God and die. There's a picture that I find interesting. I'll say it that way. An eagle is coming down, claws out, about to grab a mouse. Have you seen it? And the mouse stands fully erect, looking up at the eagle, and has one hand raised in an extremely rude gesture, which I will not imitate. That's what Satan would have us do in regard in, in relation to God. That's the idea. Yes, God is coming down and doing this to you. Be defiant. Curse God and die. Like that mouse. But of course that's not true at all, is it? It isn't God's claws, but Satan's. God is a God of love. That picture regarding God is all wrong. And we are here not to make such a rude gesture toward God, but to vindicate his character, to stand for him, though the heavens fall. That's the deal. And he said unto her, 
Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speakest. speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? Wow. That one takes some explanation. Because it sounds like an elliptical sentence, doesn't it? Shall we not receive evil good from God and shall we not receive evil and it stops, but we are tempted to add the next two words, from God. It feels elliptical. But Job, not knowing the great controversy, not seeing the frame story at least, doesn't know where evil comes from. Later, it looks like, through inspiration, he finds out about the outside of the frame. Not now. Job, at that moment, inside the frame, doesn't really know where evil comes from, apparently. Whatever. Look what he says. Shall we receive good from God? He knows where good comes from. And shall we not receive evil? And then, after the word evil, he shuts his mouth. He does not continue. He leaves it elliptical. And again, many people read that and say, he's accusing God. No, he's not. We don't know what he's thinking in his head. All we know is what he's saying. And what he's saying is, stops right short. He gets, we'll receive good from God, and we receive evil. We know we receive evil from somewhere, and here he is at the, at the edge of a cliff, and he does not jump over. He stops with the word evil. He does not make a statement then about where evil comes from. And this is a huge huge theme in the book of Job. When you don't know, don't say. Don't pretend you know when you don't know. Don't let your speech go beyond what you know. If everybody followed that rule, gossip would be impossible. Don't say what you don't know. An awful lot of conversations would be a whole lot shorter, too. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Cuts it right off like snipping a, a piece of string. And notice the narrator. In all this did not Job sin with his lips. The narrator does not tell us what his mind said. Why? It's none of our business. All sorts of things are not our business. Intellectual sins involve going into things that are not our business. I will follow truth wherever it leads. Sorry. No. We do not speculate following truth speculatively where we are not to follow truth. 
There are truths which we are not supposed to know, is that right? I am not supposed to know and must not know, must not even speculate what goes on behind closed doors in my neighbor's bedroom. Is that right? My neighbor has a right to privacy, even from my thoughts, my speculations, my fantasies. No. My neighbor has a right to know that I am not going there. That's an intellectual sin. We cannot go into where and say, well, you know, Job must have been thinking. I don't know what Job was thinking. Therefore, we don't say. All we know is what the narrator says. In all this did not Job sin with his lips. We have just time for to end this chapter. Let's do it. Now, when Job's three friends heard about all this evil that was come upon him, they came everyone from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zohar the Naamanite, Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent everyone his mantle and they sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights and none spake a word to him for a week. For they saw his grief was very great. At this point, the friends have done nothing wrong. They are simply sitting with him and mourning. For seven days and seven nights, they just sit with him. You ever done that? I have friends who have been afflicted. Have I ever come and sat with them wordlessly? This is, in fact, the Iliad answer. As a Priam and Achilles weep together. That's the Iliad answer. It's not a bad answer. It's just not the complete answer. It's not an answer that glorifies God ultimately. But it's a good start. So let us be very careful and I guess the time is over, so I can't continue. But let's just leave it at that point. These three comforters are doing fine at this moment. Let's recognize that. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.